You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We have been looking at the parables that Jesus tells uh, when we get together in a large group like this. And I've been trying to show you that parables are intentionally told to agitate you, to kind of frustrate you and disrupt your previously existing categories of what you thought God was like and what you thought connecting to God was like. And one of the things that I've really loved about looking at these things is that they they are just so deceptive. Like they are so simple. This is two little verses that we're going to look at. On the surface, this story seems so benign. It seems so uh, just straightforward. And yet when you plunge in, it really does butt up against and challenge kind of everything that's floating in our hearts. So let me go ahead and read it. This is Matthew 13. I'll read these two quick verses and then we'll plunge in. Says this, he, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is God's word for us. Let me pray and then we'll consider it. Let's pray. Father, you have said um, that your word is sweeter than honey, that it's more valuable than gold, that it's precious. And so I pray that um, that's how we would experience it tonight as we even just look at these two quick short verses. Would these words become sweet to our own hearts? Open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our ears. Allow us to be receptive to your spirit. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Samuel Johnson was a man that lived in the 18th century, and he kept a diary, a little journal, as some of y'all I'm sure do, and um, you can actually read and have access to his journal. It's published, it's available, you can read it. I want to read you a couple of excerpts from this dude's diary tonight, and um, I want to try, you're going to get the impression early on that this dude is not a morning person. 1738 is the first entry I'm going to read from. 1738. He says this. Did I say something weird? (laughs) What just happened? What's that? Wow. Gotcha. Okay. The year 1738 says this. Oh, Lord. says, Oh, Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth which means sleeping in. He sleeps in and he wants to get up to pray. So in 1738, he prays that, Lord, help me to wake up. 1757, 19 years later, here's what he writes. Oh, mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time that's been spent in idleness and sin. 1764, he writes this. My purpose is from this time on to avoid idleness and to rise early. The next year, 1765, he writes this. I purpose to rise at 8 because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie till 2. 
man after my own heart. 1769, four years after that, he says, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and then by degrees at six. Six years later, 1775, dude writes this. When I look back upon resolutions and improvement which have year after year been made and been broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? And then he go ahead goes and resolves to rise again at 8. And then the very last entry, 1781, which was 43 years after the first entry, three years before his own death, here's what he writes. I will not despair. Help me. Help me, oh my God. And then he vows to rise at 8 or sooner. Now I wonder if that sounds anywhere familiar to anything in your life. Where you have something that you're like, I just want to change this, and I don't know how. And you try, and you try, and it doesn't work. I don't like my body, so I exercise, and I work out, and I try, and I try to change it, and it's not cooperating. Or I don't like my GPA, so I'm studying, and I'm studying, and it's not seeming to get up to where I want it to be. Or you have this habit, you have this destructive habit that you keep doing over and over and over. No matter how many times you say, I'll never do that again, you keep doing it. And so here's the question that I think that this passage kind of puts in front of us tonight is, is change even possible? How do people actually change? Does this Jesus gospel stuff actually work? Does it transform you? Because if it doesn't, if there is no power in it, if it doesn't transform you and change you, then we should just kind of close up shop and go home because we're wasting our time. Y'all are busy. We've got a lot of stuff to do. If this doesn't work, Let's not mess with it. But Jesus is going to show us in this little parable, this little story, change is available. Radical transformation is available. And he's interested in doing that in your heart and in mine. So what I want to do, we can make a ton of observations from this little passage. I just want to make three observations and then we'll be done. On on change, what change actually looks like biblically speaking. Here's the first observation I want to make is that change starts small. And it usually continues in very small ways. That's the first observation I want to make. Change starts small, and it usually progresses continually in really small ways. And you see this because he compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, which in Palestinian agriculture was the smallest little seed that they worked with. He even says, straight up, it's the smallest of all seeds. But a mustard tree would grow to be about 8 to 12 feet tall, fully grown. So you picture like the size of a basketball goal or taller. That's how big this mustard tree thing would get. And so what he's saying is God's work in your life and God's work in the world starts really small. And it looks so insignificant on the front end. And yet it becomes this massive thing that just takes over everything and it can't be stopped. That's the idea. Change initially starts small. And so I want to give you a little image to think about it this way. Let's say you're in an airplane from Knoxville and you're flying directly to New York City. Let's say as soon as you get in the air, the pilot just decides to take one little, you know, take the wheel or whatever that thing is, one tick off course. Just one little degree, move it this way. Initially, that doesn't really affect anything. You're still kind of generally going in the same direction. But if you stretch that out over mile after mile after mile after mile, you end up in a different continent. Start small, ends big. Or, um, to be a little bit more pop culture-y, 
Let's talk about Breaking Bad. Walter White, as you know, if you're familiar with the show, he starts out in the show as a relatively decent dude. He's a high school chemistry teacher down on his luck. But by the end of the fifth season, he's a bloodthirsty, power-hungry, murderous monster. But he doesn't become that overnight. He, he, he makes a series of really small decisions, one after the other, that just gradually devolves him bit by bit into something else. Or, you know who's familiar with this? Butch Jones is familiar with how change works, biblically speaking. You don't take a football program and instantly change it into a juggernaut powerhouse football program. It happens brick by brick. One little brick doesn't do anything. It looks so insignificant. One little brick. How does that contribute to anything? And yet you pile it up, and supposedly it becomes this massive juggernaut powerhouse of a football program. I'm not going to talk about this weekend, so let's just keep moving. But that's the basic idea here, is that change starts small. And what I want you to see is that this idea chafes up against every single one of our American values. We as Americans, we are enamored with bigness. We love big. This is partly why you came to UT, because it's big. It's the big state school. And when you go and interview with a company, you want them to see on your resume... You went to UT Knoxville, not UT Martin, because this is the big school. That was a joke. I'm not dissing my UT Martin peeps. Well, ish. I am a little bit. Um, Or, you know, this is how we think about sports. Let's build a ginormous stadium and stuff 100,000 people in it because big equals significant and powerful and awesome. And even Christians, this is how we think. I've had, I've had you know, really sweet, well-intentioned uh, Christians come up to me a good bit and say, hey, let's do a big campus ministry-wide worship event where we bring on all the campus ministries and bring in all the churches. Let's have this big thing because we think the assumption is big equals influence, big equals power, big equals awesome. And what Jesus is showing you is that um, change actually happens, happens through really small, seemingly insignificant ways. We think that we're going to be changed by the big moments in life. I'm going to go to this big, awesome retreat, and I'm going to leave instantly changed. I'm going to go to this big, awesome worship thing, and I'm going to leave instantly changed. And Jesus is saying, it actually happens through much smaller, more seemingly insignificant ways. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you really want to change, the thing that will um, radically transform your life and bring healing into your soul uh, would look like something like forgiving someone that you are bitter towards right now. Uh, that seems so insignificant. Going to India and starting a ministry that feeds the homeless, that seems big and powerful and awesome, and yet that does not have the same power to change your heart like forgiving your roommate or forgiving your parents or forgiving your friend that you're upset with right now. Because that one little act of forgiveness today is that, is that plane, the trajectory of your life, moving over one degree. And if you forgive someone today, you're improving your future marriage down the road a hundredfold. Because marriage is fundamentally about forgiveness. You sin against each other all the time. And as you learn to become a person that forgives, and that becomes the center of who you are, you're actually improving your marriage down the road today. It has radical power. 
Or actually, here's another example. A, a way that you can um, become a real person of substance and character and stability is uh, to start praying for your friends. It seems so small. It seems so weak. It seems so insignificant. It's small. And we think, uh, like, getting an internship with the big four or uh, going to an awesome, getting into an awesome med school, like, that's going to be what changes my life. And yet Jesus says, when you start praying for people, like, actually offering your heartfelt pleas to the Lord so that he would do something in the life of your friends that may not know him, that's actually producing more change in your life than the big, splashy things. And look, if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you something that's historically verifiable, scientifically undeniable. You can't argue with me on this. It's a big claim. But if you zoom out and look at history, how did the church of Jesus begin? The church began with 12 insignificant peasants in a Middle Eastern obscure village 2,000 years ago. And they lived in the Roman Empire, which was the massive juggernaut war machine at the time that basically covered all of the known Western world. And the Roman Empire did not like the church. And so the Roman Empire set about to destroy it and squash it and kill anyone that was a Christian. Guess what's not around in 2015? The Roman Empire. Guess what is around? The church. That seemingly insignificant, irrelevant little seed called the church has grown and it has crossed every socioeconomic boundary, every ethnic boundary, every racial boundary. It's the weed that has grown up everywhere. And it will be around long after Google and Apple and Facebook disappear. It will be around after the University of Tennessee disappears and after uh, the United States of America goes away. It will outlast them all. The church... Like that weird, awkward group of people that get together in middle school gyms and auditoriums and throw really awkward parties with bad mac and cheese and sing weird songs that nobody really understands. Like that's the church of Jesus. Change happens. It starts small and it continues small. So let me give you just two quick little applications before we um, move to the next little observation. If change starts small then you can't be seduced into thinking that the action is where all the big things are. Change actually happens with little small things like confessing your sin, praying, resting, worshiping, hanging out with people that you wouldn't normally hang out with. That seems so irrelevant. No one's going to like that on Instagram, and yet that, that's what has the power to radically alter the course of your life. But of course, the flip side is also true. If, you, if, you, if you're here and you think, uh, you know, for these next four or five years when I'm at college, I'll just kind of um, hit the pause button on my faith because this is kind of my time to do my thing and enjoy the college experience. And then maybe after I graduate, I'll kind of circle back and um, maybe take this faith thing seriously. If that's where you are, I think this passage looks at you and says, um, that's naive and that's foolish. Every little decision that you make is setting the trajectory of your life for the rest of your life. And so it's, it's just kind of crazy to think for four or five years, I'm going to go down this trajectory, and then I'm going to radically steer the train back in a totally different direction. That's not how reality works. Change starts small, and it continues in small ways. So let's look at the second observation. second observation is this, is that change takes time. 
It takes a lot of time. A couple of years ago, um, my wife, Catherine, and I, we wanted to grow some fresh herbs just to kind of have for recipes and whatnot. We wanted some basil. We wanted some, you know, mint and whatnot. So I went to the store to go get some stuff, and I came to the section in the store, and there was two different options. You can get a little pouch with seeds in it, or you can get a little kind of potted plant soil thing with a little basil plant already grown. And so guess which one I picked? The one that was already grown. Because do you know how long it takes for seeds to grow? Like forever. Like I don't have time for that trash to like sit around and watch seeds grow. So I got a pre-made, already grown basil mint plant. And, and I think that's typically how we think Jesus' work in our life is. It's like I've signed up for Jesus. He's going to instantly download whatever into my life. I'm going to be radically, instantly a more loving, gracious, kind, gentle, patient person. And this is saying, no, it, it's slow. It is a slow, bit by bit, dare I say, brick by brick uh, change. That's a marathon perspective. Change takes time. And this begins to chafe up against every one of our American values. Because in America, we hate slow. We hate slow. We want instant results. We want quick fixes. You know this is true. You get in your car and you kind of get trapped behind the car on the highway that's going slow. You want to start murdering people. Or, you know, you get your phone or you're on your computer and it freezes for two seconds and you want to throw it against the wall, right? Or you go to the UC at noon to get lunch and you want to transfer. Like, you know, like, we hate waiting. We hate lines. We want instant results. We want quick fixes, which is why the, the question, did I get anything out of it, is a really kind of a misguided question. So, so think about it. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say that you uh, sit down and you try to muster up the energy to, to try to read the Bible. Let's say you're not used to that practice. You've heard Christians do this and apparently enjoy this. And you, you, have, you experience some level of guilt over not doing it. And so you sit down. You have your open Bible. You've got your journal out. You've got your coffee. Gram it real quick just to make sure your friends know what you're doing. And um, you sit down and you read it. And for 20 minutes, you're confused, and you close it, and you're like, well, that kind of sucked. I didn't really get anything out of it. I don't know if I want to do that again. And the assumption there is, if I don't experience instant insight, instant joy, instant spiritual groovy vibes, then I'm not interested. But think about it. You, wouldn't, you don't relate to your friends like this. You don't relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend like this. You don't sit down with your girlfriend and say, okay, from 8 to 8.30, we're going to sit on the couch and we're going to have a meaningful conversation. And at the end of it, we're going to feel connected and intimate and we feel like we understand each other for that 30-minute time period. That's not the way it works. The way that it works is that you spend a ton of quantity time with a person and then kind of spontaneously quality time bubbles up, Right? So to ask the question, did I get anything out of this, it just betrays our American quick-fix assumptions. It works the same way with worship or with church. So you go to church, you go to worship, come to RUF. Afterward at Oscar, somebody asks you, how was it? You're like, eh, I didn't really get anything out of it. And that's that, that the assumption is, if I don't experience instant something, I'm not interested. 
But because we think of worship as just a pill we need instantly, and it, and it functions a lot, actually a lot more like waves, you know, kind of crashing against rocks on the beach. One wave smashing into a rock, it doesn't really do anything. But you have wave after wave after wave stretched out over year after year after year. That, that transforms the coastline. And that's what worship is. As you come to worship, as you hear the Bible over and over and over and over, gradually it's eroding and transforming something in your heart. So to ask the question, am I experiencing something? Am I getting anything out of it? Not necessarily the best question. So, so let me give you this um, uh, picture. At my house, uh, the driveway at my house, it, it tells a pretty interesting story if you, if you look at it long enough. 50 or 60 years ago, uh, when my house was built, somebody decided, let's lay down some thick, heavy, industrial concrete so that we can park our cars on the driveway and then get out to the street. So they did that, but what they didn't realize is that towards the back of my house, there was an acorn underneath it that they put the heavy concrete on. And what happened was that the acorn began to kind of dig roots into the ground, and a little sprout thing came up, and a tree eventually began to grow, and the roots began to stretch out, and the roots began to rise up and start breaking up my concrete. And so as you get drive closer to my house, my driveway is all bumpy because there's these ginormous tree roots underneath it. But if you, if you were just common sense to say, here's a thick, heavy slab of concrete pressing in and crushing an acorn, what's going to win? And it's a no-brainer. It's the acorn. It always wins. It slowly, gradually grows, and it doesn't stop, and it just takes over and destroys everything. And that is the picture of what Christian change really does look like. It's slow, it's gradual, and the power is in its gradualness. Look, one of the cool things about my job, I'll just uh, brag about my life for a minute. Um, one of the cool things about my job is that I, I get to kind of step into your individual, the little gardens of your life every now and then when I hang out with you over coffee or lunch or uh, milkshakes or when I hang out with you in small groups or whatever. Obviously, I don't know all of you. I haven't gotten a chance to sit down and hang out with all of you which I really wish I could. Um, but even the students that I know, I don't, even, I don't even get to hang out with you a ton. Sometimes I only hang out with you once a semester or something. But when I hang out with you, you know, we're, we're catching up and talking about life, and I'm just kind of getting to know you and walking through life with you and praying for you. And, but what's really cool for me is that I just kind of get to pop into your little garden and see, how, see what's grown, see what's changed. Because for you, you're looking at your little garden every day and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. You're just looking at stuff and it doesn't seem like anything's growing. It's the same way like with my kids. I see my kids every single day. It doesn't look like they're growing, but I know that they are. It doesn't feel like you're growing, but when I get these little touch points with you every now and then, I see you change. Like I really do see in some of your lives, you becoming more humble. You becoming more... Uh, like you, you care less about other people's opinions. You become less, you're, you're growing to be less defensive. Uh, you're finding Jesus more beautiful. You're talking more openly about your own struggles. That's really awesome for me to get to see. And so if, if anything, I, can, I just want to encourage you that you've got to take a marathon, big picture, long-term perspective. Because if you don't, you're just going to get discouraged and bitter and frustrated. So don't, when you try to evaluate yourself, don't evaluate yourself now compared to who you were this summer or who you were last year. 
You need to compare yourself to who you were five years ago or ten years ago and then ask the question, man, what has God done in my life since then? Change, it starts small and it continues in small ways. It takes a ton of time. And the last little observation I want to make is this, is that it's organic. It's organic. Here's what I mean by that. It's because Jesus uses, he intentionally uses this little picture, this metaphor of a seed, of a plant. He's like getting all botanical on us. It's organic, it's alive, it's growing, which, which really needs to be com- contrasted with uh, mechanical growth. Mechanical growth would be like if you want to get a pile of firewood to be bigger, you just get more pieces of firewood and throw it on the pile, and the pile grows. It gets bigger, but it's only growing externally and uh, but it's not alive. That's not the same way that like a plant grows. It's not the same way that a child grows. And Jesus is saying real transformation change uh, happens organically. And so let me explain it like this. If I have gotten to sit down with you and hang out for a little bit, if I know you well enough, the question that I'll ask you is how do you think that you're doing spiritually? And it's interesting from my vantage point to watch y'all try to figure out how to answer that question. Because some weird switch gets flipped when I ask you, how are you doing spiritually? And y'all would just start listing off stuff that y'all are doing. Well, I've been reading the Bible some. I know I need to read it more, but I've been pretty good about it. I'm praying, but I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to church. I joined that small group you encouraged me to join. So you start listing like the stuff that you're doing, which I think is really interesting because... I asked you how you were doing spiritually, not what you were doing spiritually. And we don't really know how to answer how we're doing spiritually, so we just start listing off our spiritual statistics. We just start throwing the, the, the firewood on the pile and saying, look, it's growing. Like, I'm, look, look at all this stuff. I'm growing. Picture it this way. Uh, let me give you another image. Let's say that I went to Publix and I bought some apples. And then I came home, and there's a tree in my backyard. And let's say that I took those apples and I duct taped them up to the branches. And I put all these apples all over the tree, and I was like, ta-da, look at my tree. It's growing. It's awesome. It's vibrant. It's alive. It's got mad apples coming out of it. Uh, What would eventually happen to the apples? They would start to rot. They would stink. And then they would fall off. And when we say, when we try to evaluate how we're doing spiritually by what we're doing spiritually, that's all we're doing. We're, we're just stapling and taping fruit up on the tree and say, look, I, I'm growing, but it never works. And the reason why it starts wilting and falling off is because you just, it doesn't, it's not producing real change. And so you really just stop signing up for stuff. It's like, I'm being really busy. I'm doing all this stuff, but it's not actually changing me. So eventually you just stop signing up for stuff. But here's the thing. Don't confuse religious activity with spiritual maturity. Don't make the confusion that religious or spiritual activity is the same thing as spiritual maturity. It's not. So what would real organic internal heart change look like? Well, let me, let me give you a little story. I heard this story a couple of years ago. It's a true story, apparently, that took place in, like, rural, like, the highlands of Scotland. There was this man who owned a farm uh, there with his family, and um, bitter atheist, very uh, angry, uh, 
angry person would kick his farm animals whenever he'd get upset. Like they'd be in the barn and he'd like kick a pig or something. I don't know. And um, one day this preacher comes through his little village and he goes to hear the preacher speak. And he like instant, and he becomes converted. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. He's changed. He's, he's a Christian. He's experienced the new birth. Like he's, he's, new, he's a new person. And so he starts living his life as a Christian. And a couple of weeks into his newfound Christian life, he's in the barn one day and he kind of loses his temper for whatever reason. And he kicks an animal. And then he comes inside and his wife is in there in the kitchen. And he just kind of falls on the ground weeping. And he's, and he's like, it didn't work. It didn't work. I had this horrible thing about me, and I put my faith in Jesus. I thought he would fix me. And look, I, d- I did the same thing. It didn't work. And he's sitting there weeping. And his wife had the wisdom to look at him and say, look at you. You would have never have wept over your anger before. It most definitely worked. He is working in your heart. You, you would... You would never have been crying over your sin in the way that you are now. You would have just done it and kept moving on. That is what organic change and transformation looks like from the heart. And so I think we need to ask ourselves different questions. Not what are we doing to evaluate how we're doing spiritually. But ask yourself a question like that. Do I weep over my own sin? Do I see it and see the way that it's destructive in my life and the life of other people and it breaks my heart? Do I find myself becoming less defensive to criticism? Do I find myself becoming less stressed out over exams and papers and tests? Uh, do Do I find myself hanging out with and rubbing shoulders with people that five years ago I would have totally avoided? These are the questions of organic, real, heartfelt transformation from the inside out. And so here's the last thing that I'll say, and then we'll be done. If something is growing organically, it can only grow that way because it's connected to some sort of power source, right? The the only reason that the fruit is growing on a tree is because the tree is providing nutrients and resources that that it's sending to the actual fruit. And what Jesus is showing us throughout the Bible is that he is that power source, You will not change in this sort of way unless you are connected to him. He says you can do nothing, nothing apart from me. Really interesting passage in John chapter 12. Jesus compares himself to a seed. He says unless a seed goes in the ground, unless a seed is buried, there's no chance that it will multiply and produce fruit. And he says, in the same way, there's no way that my church, my kingdom, my transforming power will be unleashed in the world unless I am buried as well. Unless I'm put in the ground. And he's saying, I died, I was buried to serve you, to love you, to care for you, to provide for you. And that's the power source. When you lean into and drink deeply of his love, his grace for you, even when you fail him, even when you rebel against him, even when you're cold towards him, even when your faith is weak, and you still experience over and over and over that resource flood of his love, his grace, his faithfulness, that's what begins to melt your heart. That's what begins to soften your heart. That's what begins to make you a humble person, a patient person. A gracious person, a winsome person, a warm and inviting person, because you have experienced firsthand what it is like 
to be a complete rebel, deserving wrath and judgment, and yet experiencing nothing but grace and love and forgiveness. That, by the way, is why we always talk about that in RUF. That's why anytime you ever come here, you're always going to hear the cross, because that's the only thing that we really have to offer you. The Bible says it is the power of God. The gospel is the power to transform your life. And so the question for you as we end is this. Are you connected to it? Are you tapping into his, that stream of resources and nutrients of his love and his grace and his kindness for you? Because if you're not, then you won't change. Or at least you will change, but you'll change in a way that becomes you're more hard more bitter, more cynical, more anxious, more stressed out. The way to become loving, gracious, kind, patient, gentle, self-controlled, the only way is to be connected to the resource of the gospel of Jesus. And so would you consider that an invitation tonight? Let me pray. Father, I pray for um, the folks in this room tonight that... um, may not know you, I pray that you would present yourself in such a way that you would be so attractive and so compelling that they would come to find rest and forgiveness and grace in who you are, that you are, you are the God that loves them as they are and yet loves them so much that you will not leave them as they are. And I pray for my friends in the room that would consider themselves believers and followers of Christ, that it's so easy to forsake your grace and your love and just run to busyness and run to spiritual stuff and we just fill up our calendar and we get busy and we get stressed out and we miss you in the midst of it. So Father, give us yourself. Regardless of where we are tonight, Father, give us you. Give us your son. Allow us to taste the sweetness of your grace for sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.